The following is a message from Reverend Ken Belden of Wellsprings Congregation. In a few weeks, it'll be uh, 17 years since I performed my younger sister's wedding. And she and I are very close with each other. We talk or text at least several times a week, if not several times a day. And leading up to her wedding is actually a fairly emotional time in uh, our lives, and especially in her life. One thing that uh, contributed to that is that less than a decade before, our own beloved mother had died very suddenly at a young age, and it turns out unnecessarily so. And so going into that wedding, it was kind of emotionally heavy for our family, and most especially for my sister. One of the other things that contributed to kind of a, an emotional cloud, a sense of heaviness around the wedding, was that, and this is just historical circumstance, the date of the wedding was September 22nd, 2001. So it was 11 days after the attack in New York, in the Pentagon. And when I say literal, I mean literal right now. Literal has come to mean figurative, but I mean literal. My sister and my future brother-in-law's apartment was literally in the shadows of the Twin Towers when the sun would set and the light. So their lives were greatly affected, as so many people's lives were. And so recognizing that there was this kind of sense of emotional heaviness, weightiness, a lot in our hearts for all of us in the wedding in different ways, I decided that in performing the wedding, especially in my, my little homily, my little, little wedding homily, as we call it, little message, I, I wanted to bring some um, levity, a little bit of lightness. And so I reflected back on our childhood growing up, and like I said, my sister and I were really close right now. We talk all the time. We were two and a half years apart in age, which meant that we had a lot of personal enmity against each other at times growing up, a lot of sibling rivalry, a lot of getting in each other's business and stirring up the pot just to stir up the pot, as so many siblings do. And uh, one of the things, one of the touchstones of our um, childhood in the 70s and 80s was this. Michelle Silverstein with the Sidewalk and B-Stories. They're common uh, touchstones for many of you I recognize as well, too. And so I opened my wedding homily with these words that I recall really feeling way back when. One sister for sale, one sister for sale. One crying and spying young sister for sale. I'm really not kidding. Now who starts the bidding? <laughs> I remember saying at the time kind of extemporaneously. This isn't fair because I have the mic and I'm not sharing any poetry about how annoying older brothers are, but we're going to continue with the wedding homily notwithstanding. We have this wonderful relationship and we had a great relationship back then, which is why it's a joke. And uh, this wasn't the only piece of Shel Silverstein poetry or story that factored into uh, our relationship as siblings. Another one that did was this, the missing piece in the big O which I took to re-terming in a way that had nothing at all to do with the story. Emily, that's my sister. Emily, you are the big O. You are the big obnoxious. <laughs> that has nothing at all to do with the meaning of the story. Some of you might recall what this story is actually about. It is about that little character there, the missing piece, who spends the entire story, or almost the entire story, looking for, uh, <clears throat> shall we say, the Jerry Maguire experience. <laughs> you complete me. That's what the missing piece wants. Some fit, but would not roll. Others could roll, but did not fit. The missing piece spent all this time. Here it is. Here I am. Come and get me. Some complete me. Come form the thing that's going to make me feel whole. 
the truth is, I actually hadn't thought about this story, the missing piece in the Big O, for, for quite a number of years, until this last year, when someone who's given me permission to share their story, not the fullness of their identity, to share their story, someone who I know from the number of recovery circles that I inhabit, came up to me one day and said, I want you to see something. And they took out their phone, and they showed me a video that was made of the missing piece in the Big O. I'm going to show you part of that video from about halfway through to the end right now. And then one day, one came along who was suspicious. What do you want of me? Asked the missing piece. Nothing. What do you need from me? Nothing. Who are you? Asked the missing piece. I am the Big O. Said the Big O. I think you're the one I've been waiting for, said the missing piece. Maybe I'm your missing piece. But I'm not missing a piece, said the Big O. There's no place you would fit. That's too bad, said the missing piece. I was hoping that perhaps I could roll with you. You cannot roll with me, said the Big O. But perhaps you can roll by yourself. By myself? Missing piece cannot roll by itself. Have you ever tried? Asked the Big O. But I have sharp corners, said the missing piece. I'm not shaped for rolling. Corners wear off, said the big O, and shapes change. Anyhow, now I must say goodbye. Perhaps we will meet again. And it rolled away. The missing piece was alone again. For a long time, it just sat there. Then, slowly, lifted itself up onto one of and flopped it. Then, lift, pull, flop. It began to move forward. And soon its edges began to wear off, and its shape began to change. And then it was bumping instead of flopping. And then it was bouncing instead of bumping. And then it was rolling instead of bouncing. And it didn't know where, and it did not care. My friend phone pulled away and then looked at me with tears in their eyes. This person who, again, I'm not going to tell you their whole story, but who has known a life that has not been easy, has known a life of not fitting in, has known a life of the fear of never belonging, said, that's me. At the flip, pull, flop, that's me right now. I'm learning that I can let go of some of my hardest edges. And then they walked off with that beautiful sad smile of grace that I have both experienced myself limitless number of times in my life and seen on the faces of so many others. I love the story of the missing piece in the Big O about the necessity of both connection 
and self-differentiation. It reminds me very much about today's spiritual passage. Don't worry, he won't get far on foot. It's about this person, played by Joaquin Phoenix in one picture, and then the actual John Callahan on the other. He focuses on the story of his life, based in the truth of his life, based on, not totally the truth, of who he was in the 1970s and 1980s. He goes back and forth in time, and you see that the defining experience of his life was when he was an active alcoholic, hard drinker, a lot of drugs, and he goes out one night, as he often does, and he meets up with another hard partying person, and they really tie one on, and his new friend gets behind the wheel, has an accident, the car flips, and his friend walks away unscratched. John Callahan walks away paralyzed from the mid-chest down. Most limited use of his hand, a condition known as Guillain-Cosic Lupus. Eventually, although not immediately after the accident, took him some time. He quits drinking. He gets sober. And he enters recovery. Now, let me tell you something true for me about John Callahan. I didn't know much about him before this movie. And after seeing it, I didn't really like him all that much. <laughs> uh, he becomes a cartoonist. And a cartoonist who actually is most effective when he's reflecting back to the world what it's like to be a person with physical limitations and with disabilities. He really puts a thumb in the eye in some pretty aggressive and on-target ways of what we now would call, not back in the 70s and 80s, but inspiration porn. Any of you know what inspiration porn is? Inspiration porn is when those of us with shall we say, although I'm really going to put this word in air quotes, normal, <laughs> physical capacities, cognitive capacities, we describe ourselves without disability, point to a person who has overcome great odds because of their physical disability or cognitive limitation, and we point at them and we say, oh my God, what a tremendous inspiration. You are an example for all of us in humanity. And if you really listen to people who are disability advocates, they will say, I don't want to be your inspiration porn. <laughs> because what you're doing is you're objectifying me and not seeing the reality of my life. That's actually where John Callahan is most effective as an artist. i got to tell you, though, the rest of his cartoon art that I saw borders on the profoundly immaturely insensitive, if not outright offensive, like a shock jock, if you know that term. <laughs> Someone who says something just to get a rise out of other people. So I didn't walk away from this movie loving him all that much. But that's not the point. Let me tell you what I did love about this movie. I loved its representation of not just an individual recovery, but of the group process. And I say that as someone who, because of my own personal experience, and also at this point my not unconsiderable professional experience, believes that, um, what's the phrase? What most people need is a good listening time. <laughs> and sometimes the practices of recovery in this film fly right in the face of that, that actually it's quite confrontational, a lot of telling. That's not my approach and skill. What I 
adored about this movie. This picture of deeply imperfect, deeply flawed, deeply wounded, at times deeply broken people who are learning to trust and give and receive and above all else love and feel alive when they never thought they had that capacity. That's why this is such a beautiful story. And it is like the missing piece in the big O, which essentially says, we cannot make anyone else grow. (laughs) We cannot command it. We certainly should not or cannot coerce it if it's real growth. We cannot make anyone else become whole. But we can witness and we can encourage to find their own shape. And then we might be able to travel with them. This is what John has to learn as his story is told in the movie. In his deepest emotional trauma, his wound, his apparent wound, when he was given up for adoption, and he carried with him his entire life this feeling that he was not good enough, that he was rejected, that somehow he did not match up, and his mother, who he searches for, and ultimately doesn't really find, but does in an interesting way, but you go see the movie for that part. What he has to learn is to heal around that wound. What this movie really identifies is something that every good teacher in Ways of the Heart has taught me. It says something like this. In all relationships, and I'm not just talking romantic relationships, but those too, the lesson of real love, the lesson of real love is this. I don't want you to be stuck on me because I will change and die. And when I do, if you are dependent upon me, you will suffer. And as I love you, what I most wish for you is not to suffer. We don't get to keep each other. None of us do. But we can roll with each other through this life. For a time, we get the glory and the mystery of being able to share life with one another. The character in the movie, actually, who I really found a kinship with in terms of approach that I felt drawn to was uh, this character. Not Joaquin Phoenix, but Jonah Hill, who is wonderfully cast against type. If you have seen Jonah Hill movies in the past, that you know most often he plays a wildly undersexed or oversexed teenager whose entire being is consumed with the thoughts of sex. Different in this movie. As he plays uh, a young gay man who sponsors a whole, as they might say in the recovery community, uh, a whole recovery network, a whole recovery family. There are times he can be a tremendous pain in the ass, like I think all our best teachers can be, popping our balloons of our illusions. He says in what is really at the heart of this movie, he says, as we recover, and define recovery in the grandest, biggest sense you want, and as as conveys truth to your life, we will lose people we don't want to lose. And the truth of that is brought home when Jonah Hill's character dies towards the end of the movie at age. And it calls to mind one of my favorite teachings, and someone I don't quote very often here in this pulpit, Augustine, or if you grew up Protestant, Augustine. If you grew up in Florida, we call it Augustine. 
grow up Catholic or Protestant for that matter. <laughs> um, and I was taught in seminary and divinity school uh, by the people who I considered to be the true conscience of the Catholic Church. And that really matters this week when we have, when we know even more right now. We knew a lot before about the, the true horrendous, heinous crimes against humanity since uh, that, that not just individual priests committed, but the whole power structure of the church. I wasn't taught by those people. And they would call him, and they taught me to call him St. Augustine. So St. Augustine gets blamed for a lot of things, like inventing original sin and inventing the fusion of the state with religious power, and some of that is fair criticism. But St. Augustine also wrote beautifully about grief and loss and love. At one point, he lost a person dearest to him in his life. He wrote about this in his lovely book, The Confessions. And his grief was so deep, so real for his truest, deepest friend, that he came to the point in his grief where he regretted that he ever loved his friend in the first place. That deep was the pain. Until he found some words in a prayer. And they have stayed with me for now more than half my life. Our hearts are restless, Lord, until they rest in thee. Our hearts are restless, Lord, until they rest in thee. What Augustine is basically saying is that if we can receive our friends who we love as a gift, then we can accept that we only have them for a time, that we only have each other for a time. Now, my experience and understanding of God is not at all of an actual you. Actually, I like some of the language from the movie in which Jonah Hill's character regularly comes back to quoting at just the right time some teachings from Lao Tzu. One of these moments in which John Callahan is struggling with this wound of never feeling wanted, he encourages him in his recovery, he does to John, to return to, as Lao Tzu calls it, the boundless. The boundless from which all of us come. Which for me, that word, you can use any word you want to, is about as good a pointer to the divine as any. Because nothing at all was not being found in our hearts and hearts. One of the kinds of folks I would encourage us all to stay far away from are the people who present themselves as spiritual teachers and who view sadness as somehow wrong. That somehow we're not doing it right. In fact, one of my favorite stories goes like this. It's a very brief story, it's a story of one of these teachers, one of these awakened ones, one of these enlightened ones who've gathered a whole bunch of followers, disciples around them. And they're kind of traveling through the countryside as teachers did in itinerant fashion many years ago. And they come upon a village and in that village they see a hut. And in that hut they hear the deepest wailing and crying that they have ever heard. And the teacher goes with the disciples to that hut and the disciples expect the teacher to say these words that's going to bring all the crying to a close. And instead what the teacher does is they sit down in the place of this grief and this loss and they don't even know the story and the teacher starts bawling their eyes out. And the disciples are not happy with this response. When they leave, they say, but 
you have taught us that we need to get beyond all of that. And still pointing to the tears that are in his cheeks. He says, how I get beyond all that is by grace. By really fully feeling my loss. Spiritual bypass is a sin. And it's a lie like any other kind of emotional dogma. There's a teacher I really enjoy named James Hutherland. He's a Zen teacher. And she tells a story that I read this past week uh, about a woman who was uh, very deep in meditation. It looks like this place as well as some of you might have too. Very deep in meditation to that place where it seems like all the particulars of our life fall away. And there's just a sheer, beautiful radiance of being. And she doesn't know that. And then her seven-year-old son comes home from school. And her response to her son is, Who are you? James Sutherland says, That could be disturbing to a seven-year-old son coming from his mother. But that's not what the woman's experience meant. It was, Who are you? Who am I? I want to know you and love you in the fullness of your being. Not just my projections of who I think you are. In our relationships with other people, especially when talking about one-on-one, very often it goes like this. There's the other person, and there's our experience of the other person that we tell in the story in our mind and that these two are not the same people. Over and over again, if we live in this emotional shorthand in our relationships, it spells out the most limiting language for us. And so real love requires us over and over and over again to break the seal, throw away the signs, and our own perceptions, and just ask them really mean those questions. Who are you? And to show who we are as well, too. And to keep showing up like that for each other. Recognizing that our stories of each other are not each other. Ongoing work, why I always love the word when I describe myself as a person in long-term recovery who is still recovering. Still ongoing. They make light of this in a beautiful way in the movie in which John says, joking, and all the rest of the people in his recovery circle crack up, I thought my story would end with an epiphany, and then I would be cured forever. I don't think that's how it works for any of us. We grow, and then we keep learning this lessons we need to over and over again. This is what it is, however you want to call it, returning to the boundless, the heart that is restless, Lord, until... It rests on thee. The natural response to this receiving the gifts of our lives, and especially the people we love, is gratitude. Nothing more and nothing less. Not control, not dependency, not holding on, not even letting go. <laughs> Just gratitude. Over and over again. And actually, this past week, as I was taking about 10 tomatoes off of our tomato trees, you know, banner season in the garden for the tomatoes, and for 
it seems like every day I have to have kind of a new way to serve tomatoes. And so I did it this past week just with basil mayo with parmesan and bacon and tomatoes and some avocado in there. Pretty good. And it called to mind another great teacher who we already heard from this morning, Warren Zevon, who when he knew he was dying, and he, like John Callahan, was a former wild man in the 1970s that kind of did it all and somehow survived, when he was asked by David Letterman, what have you learned now that you are dying? He paused for a moment and he said, enjoy every service. There is a whole philosophy of life in that. We can enjoy every sandwich, start with something small. Maybe we can grow and roll to the place of recognizing that, yes, we are all from the nature of everything. Boundless. And that for a time, but only for a time, we get these bodies and we get these hearts. And we get to be here. And we get to be standing and sweating in front of a bunch of people in this beloved community. And not forever. Just for now. And yes, someday all our lives will return to the boundless. And we can be grateful that we get to be here again. Amen. May you live in blessing. Pray with me. Oh, boundless one, this is not just a one, but in everything, the all and each and the each and all, that calls us to remember who we really are. That the story of ourselves and the story of each other is just the smallest fraction. In the same way, when we look upon the night sky, we see what we see, but we do not see everything all at once. And so the process of taking it all in takes time moment to moment and treasuring what is ours this moment and grieving it if it is painful and changing it if it is harmful. Moment by moment by moment, allowing the unfolding that allows us to move through this life, crawling, walking, rolling, whatever the ways of movement that most befit our own souls. May we see this moment both that which is right here in front of us and the great boundlessness that gives birth to it all. Amen. If you enjoyed this message and would like to support the mission of Wellsprings, go to our website, wellspringsuu.org. That's wellsprings, the letters uu.org.